You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We're looking at the tail end of John 1 today, so open up your Bibles or open up your bulletins to the gospel reading. And in preparation for this sermon, I googled the most iconic movie openings ever, and I came across a ton of lists. I mean, up there was definitely Star Wars, right? Yellow text over space, fanfare of trumpets, crazy spaceship flying over the top. Uh, But then there's also that iconic movie opening of that old movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Harrison Ford is running for his life and the boulders behind him, right? That's super up there. But do you know what many think is the most iconic opening? 1978, Jaws, famously dubbed Chrissy's Last Swim. You know, a guy is playfully chasing Chrissy as she jumps into the ocean with a come-and-get-me kind of happy-go-lucky vibe. And then there's that shot from under beneath, underneath the water. She's grabbed, she's pulled under, screaming her head off, and the rest is history. And this is a really bad transition now. But John, of all the Gospels, has an iconic opening just like this. And paying attention to that opening is actually really important to the unraveling of the whole story. So here we are in the latter half of John, but we need to pay attention to that iconic opening. John begins with a creation-style narrative. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Super epic, right? As epic as you can get. The kind of epic that actually means epic. Not epic like the way I and my boys talk with LeBron's epic dunk or bruh, this ice cream is epic. No, we're talking about real, real epic here. John 1 is the kind of text that you'd actually find scrolling in yellow over space at the beginning of Star Wars. And the word was with God and the word was God. And the question is, as those lines are scrolling, what's the final line that hits before the movie officially begins? It's chapter 1, verse 18, and it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. That's the end. And I don't know if it gets more epic than that, actually. Have you ever said, I really wish I could see God. I have trouble believing he's real. And I just want to see him. Well, tap into that feeling. Tap into that feeling and then hear what the final yellow line says again. No one has seen God, but the only God has made him known. And then the movie begins. Are you on the edge of your seat? God says, you want to see me, do you? And then the camera pans to John the Baptist in verses 19 through 28. And to set the scene... We're seeing all that, and we're all waiting on the edge of our seats. I, I can't wait to see God. I'm about to see God. Now, let's pause right there and ask the question. If you're about to see God, what do you expect to see? A big, bearded, old white man? Light shining at the end of a tunnel? A fireball? A giant, muscular warrior taller than the buildings of Manhattan? What do you expect to see? We're all waiting for the big reveal. And then here it comes in our passage, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here it comes, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now I know for some of us, our senses have grown a little dull. 
We know the Bible's story. We've heard Jesus called the Lamb of God before in the Bible and in the songs that we sing and in the liturgies that we pray. We know the end game of Jesus' arrival. So you have to try hard to actually get the shock of this moment. I'm going to change up some of the words to maybe get at what the original hearers might have heard. John says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God has made him known. And who is this God? Who is this mighty word who created the world? Curtain pulls back. Behold, the dead sheep whose blood was smeared on the doorway saved you from being annihilated by the judgment of your own guilt. That would be what it would have been like to hear that. Now, there's some debate about what Lamb of God means, but look with me. If you were to turn to the end of the story with John, chapter 19, verse 14, this account uh, is of Jesus' crucifixion. And John makes this special note. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. And right after Jesus dies, in verse 31, in that same chapter, John mentions it again. He's emphatic. It was the day of preparation. So when John the Baptist cries, Behold the Lamb of God, the Apostle John is making a connection between two ideas. One, Jesus' crucifixion, and the other, Passover. Do you remember the Passover? That ancient event that's seared into the minds and the memories of every Israelite when God delivered Israel out of Egypt? Each Israelite family was to take a lamb without blemish, slaughter it, and smear its blood over the doorpost of the house so that the spirit that brings death would pass over the home and spare their lives. So John the Baptist is making two claims. First, he's saying that Jesus is the real, true Passover lamb. He's the one that that whole episode was pointing to. He's your redeemer out of bondage and slavery. But second, he's saying It's particularly Jesus' crucifixion that stands at the center of this redeeming act. Guys, we can't miss this beginning of John. This is what good stories do. They set up a theme, and then they tell the story with that theme always rolling around in your mind. Do you remember The Lion King? At the beginning of the movie, Mufasa sits with Simba at the top of the rock and tells him that his kingdom will one day pass. And that the sun will one day set on my reign and rise on yours. It sets the context for the whole movie, this whole sun idea. Because we notice that, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, you're kind of lame anyway. But when Mufasa dies, what's happening at that moment? It's set during the time of sunset, right? It's at sundown. And when Simba eventually takes his kingship... That iconic scene on the top of Pride Rock with all that glorious music. Turning from night to day, a sunrise happens when Simba's there. And you see the sun kind of playing a role throughout all of the movie. And in the same way, in real life drama, not in fiction, but in real life drama, John's statement about Jesus being the Lamb of God sets the scene for all the action that follows. And the Apostle John wants us to remember Jesus, the Lamb of God. This is where everything is headed. Don't forget. So now, when we look at the rest of our passage, and the rest of John for that matter, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the crucified Son of God, becomes like a watermark that stays on the page every episode of John. 
This Lamb of God watermark teaches us three things. Number one, what Jesus' agenda is. Number two, what God loves. And number three, what a disciple is. And so first, it teaches us what Jesus' agenda is. Honestly, it's really hip right now to make Jesus into all kinds of things. A great teacher, a stellar moral example, a movement starter, a champion of social justice. And while all these things are true, because we can find instances in the Gospels where Jesus is fulfilling all these roles, we're not allowed to say that Jesus was merely those things. Because in any one of those instances, we still have to reckon with the beginning and the end of the story. The Lamb of God. We can't cherry pick our favorite portions of Jesus. We can't customize Jesus. We have to let Jesus speak on his own terms through the fullness of his own word. Jesus' agenda wasn't ultimately to teach. It wasn't ultimately to reform. His agenda was to save and to redeem by dying sacrificially. Maybe you're a student in elementary school or middle school, or high school, or even college or grad school. Sometimes in your your classes, maybe in history or literature, you might be taught about Jesus as a wise, ancient teacher. You may even read sections of his teachings from the Bible, like the Sermon on the Mount, or the parables, or other wise commands like love your neighbor. And if that's all that your teachers say, don't buy it. The Apostle John won't let you. There were plenty of other wise religious figures who had some great things to say and great advice to offer humanity. But none of them, not Mahatma Gandhi, not Siddhartha Gautama, not Muhammad, not even King Solomon, none of these great leaders died on a cross and took away the sins of the world. Don't forget the watermark. Jesus was the Lamb of God. To stop anywhere short of that extreme and final agenda is to miss Jesus entirely. Second, our passage teaches us what God loves. The Apostle John shares the episode of Jesus' baptism in shortened form. The other Gospels actually spend a lot more time on this moment. But John shortens it because John, having been written many years on the other side of all the other Gospels, didn't need to rehash what was already reported, but it doesn't mean that it's less important. And the apostle, therefore, merely mentions, but significantly chooses this phrase to talk about Jesus' baptism in verse 32. John the Baptist said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. We can't miss the power of Jesus' baptism in this context, particularly when it comes to what John wants to emphasize the Holy Spirit. The gospel accounts tell us that at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, and the Father declared, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. We learn a lot about what God loves in this moment, what gives God pleasure. What gives the Father pleasure? His Son, Jesus, He gives Him pleasure. But it gets better than that, actually, because when the Holy Spirit was descending on Jesus while the Father was declaring his pleasure, the Spirit was acting kind of like a spotlight on the Son, making the joy of the Father that much more visible. You see, the Holy Spirit loves to make much of Jesus. The Holy Spirit revels in, and Paul uses this word, lusts after, the things of Jesus. 
The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is madly in love with the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' biggest fanboy. The Holy Spirit has Jesus on the cover of his iPhone, right, his home screen. When the Holy Spirit takes a selfie with Jesus, he's the one doing the point, okay? And what's particularly about the Holy Spirit, what is it that the Holy Spirit loves about Jesus? It's actually his Lamb of Godness. How do we know? Guys, this is really cool. Again, if you go to the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, this is John's version of the Great Commission. Matthew has the famous Great Commission, but we shouldn't forget about John's. It's awesome. After the crucifixion, the disciples were all freaked out and holed up in some room, not knowing what to do. They weren't the bold disciples that we think they should be. But then in that moment, in their fear and weakness, Jesus appears. And then what does the gospel say happens? The spirit-filled great commission. Chapter 20, verses 21 to 23. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And what is the purpose of this spirit? Next verse. If you forgive the sins of any, they will be forgiven. Can you believe it? Disciples have been commissioned to go and share the explosive love of the Spirit. And what does this love declare? The Lamb of God. Forgiven sins. You're forgiven. You see, we sometimes act like the Holy Spirit is this mysterious, unknowable figure that does all kinds of crazy things. And while that's kind of true, Scripture attests to that, we've got some major intel here, especially in John's Gospel. The Spirit in you loves to make much of Jesus. And the Spirit loves in particular to make much of Jesus' Lamb of Godness through the forgiveness of sins. And this whole understanding of spirit-filled great commission brings us to our third point. John's declaration of the Lamb of God, the watermark, teaches us what a disciple, a follower of Jesus, really is. Notice the ordering of events. We have the announcement, behold the Lamb of God. And then Jesus, right after that, starts gathering disciples and calling them to follow him. He calls Andrew, and he calls Peter, and a host of others. But it's all under the umbrella of this beholding. What does this mean? A disciple is someone who beholds Jesus. And who in particular beholds Jesus crucified. It's why Jesus calls us witnesses in Acts 1.8. We're beholders who spill over ecstatically about what we're beholding. To follow Jesus is to behold him, crucified, perpetually, weekly, daily, hourly, minute by minute. I want to tell you that faith works by beholding. Did you know that? What I I mean here is that there's a difference between seeing something and beholding something. Seeing something is mere neurological registration. An image passes through your optic nerves and affirms that what's in front of you is indeed there. Beholding something is actually entirely different. Beholding is seeing plus. It's seeing plus being moved and captivated by it. 
Beholding is what happens when your breath is taken away, when tears are streaming down your face. Beholding is when you're moved, when knowledge that you have in your head spills over from your head into your heart. Do you remember that crazy YouTube video from a decade ago, the double rainbow guy? Do you remember that? He was videoing a double rainbow, and he was ecstatic, breathless, even crying about this double rainbow, he kept on saying. What made that video so funny? It was funny because he was beholding something that may have been unusual and even beautiful, but we all knew it actually wasn't worth that level of beholding, right? I will tell you that Jesus Christ crucified is worth beholding. That's worth crying over and over. It's worth screaming at the top of your lungs with quivering tears, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. Faith comes ever and only in this way, through beholding. So we might ask the obvious question, why am I not always beholding? I hear you talking about the crucified son, and well, at least now, I'm not all that moved. So several things may be going on. For some, we may need to recognize that before the Lamb of God can be beheld for all that he is, our sin and our need need to be beheld for all that they are. If you don't know or think or feel that you're a big-time sinner or a big-time mess-up or a royal mess of a person, chances are you won't behold Jesus. Small sin, small Jesus. It's often why the most passionate and faith-filled Christians are people in recovery. Addicts know what sin is. It's what... AA calls the bottom. They've been there. They've been to the places where all they can do, the only place they can look, is up. They're the ones that behold the Lamb of God as if their life depended on it because it really does for them. So again, if you're not beholding, it could be because you've resisted the Spirit's work in your life in convicting you of your sin. So pray for the Spirit's help here. For others, though, and this is tied up with what we just said, The lack of beholding might be because though you've seen and heard of Jesus Christ crucified, you've never really heard or internalized two simple words about this that make all the difference between seeing and beholding. Jesus Christ was crucified for you, for you, not just for the sins of the whole world, but for you individually, particularly Jesus Christ died for the thing that you can't take back from your past. Jesus Christ died for that shameful, scarring thing done to you that you wish could be erased, but you can hardly tell anyone about. Jesus Christ died for the disrespectful way that you talk to your parents or the hurtful way that you talk to your brothers or sisters. Jesus Christ died for your sickness. Jesus Christ died for your mental illness. Jesus Christ died for your weak faith and your doubts. Jesus Christ died for the sinful behaviors and habits that you just can't shake. Jesus Christ died for you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and your world. But thirdly, the reason that you may not be beholding the Lamb of God is that it's ultimately a work of the Spirit. In John's Gospel, that's where it reveals Jesus' teaching about the Spirit. Chapter 16, Jesus says, The Spirit 
will convict you concerning sin. The Spirit will guide you into all truth. And I invite you with me to desperately pray for fresh winds of the Holy Spirit to blow in your life and my life. Holy Spirit, work. Holy Spirit, move. Holy Spirit, come breathe the word of forgiveness to us afresh. Cause us to behold. The good news is, because the Spirit loves making much of Jesus, the Spirit loves answering prayers like that. So join with me once again, as we always do, in beholding the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.